Exodus 32 is the famous golden calf incident in the wilderness. Um, and one thing that we have to remember, they're only a few months away from the plagues, the Red Sea, water from a rock, and the beginning of manna. I mean, they are, it's, you know how you get fed information through a fire hose sometimes? That's, that's what's happening to the children of Israel. They're, they're just a few months from, uh, removed from living in Egypt, deeply influenced by its pagan culture for hundreds of years. They were there 430 years. And so the hundreds of idols, they were used to idolatry. They were idolaters. And, and so they were understandably, though by no means excusably, not used to the rigorous anti-idolatry demands of, of the Lord's covenant with them. And I want to, before we get to our passage, just read a part of Psalm 106 in speaking about the wilderness wanderings. They made a calf in, in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now notice the next phrase. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And that is a picture of the Messiah, isn't it? Standing in the gap. They forgot their God, their Savior, who had done great things. That sums up idolatry. Idolatry is forgetting God, our Savior, who has done great things. That's the essence of idolatry. This sums up idolatry for God's people down through the ages. And when we turn to idols, and by the way, all of us turn to idols, we forget our Savior who has done great things. And so as we study Exodus, we see how the story of Israel's salvation gets retraced into the geography of our own souls, doesn't it? Like the Israelites, we're living in the wilderness, are we not? Remember, we're living in the wilderness between our baptism, the Red Sea. The Red Sea was their baptism. We're living in the wilderness between our baptism and the promised land. They were living in the wilderness between their Red Sea and their promised land. When things get difficult, we often try to return to the Egypt of our sins, and so the story of the golden calf tells more than what happened. It tells us what happens. It exposes the anatomy of our own idolatry. And by looking carefully at how the Israelites fell into sin, we can see the pattern of sin in our own lives, and we learn to obey God. So let's stand together. We're going to read the first six verses of this narrative uh, sorry, I messed up your count, Arturo. But um, verse number one, when the, ch when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to drink and rose up to play. Lord, we thank you for the Exodus 32 and the the whole book of Exodus and what it teaches us about our Christian journey from the time of our conversion until the time that we reach glory. I pray that today, as I already have, have prayed, that you will show us the idols in our hearts, that you will expose them, that you will drive us to repentance, and you will uh, glorify yourself through your perfect mediator, the one who died for our sins, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. We're on a journey And the journey is uh, going through the book of Exodus, and our theme has been saved for God's glory. That's what we are. We're saved for God's glory. This is the next to last sermon. Next week, we're going to see where God's glory actually came down and, and see God's glory. But for now, we're dealing with idolatry. And I want us to see four important truths about idolatry in this passage And it guides us, this is the important part, it guides us between the time of our conversion and the time when we reach glory. What are these four important truths that we need to remember every day of our lives as we're walking in our wilderness? The first one is, these are all obvious. Number one, be careful not to sin. How many woke up this morning and said, hey, you know what, it's Sunday, I'm going to, I plan on sinning. Nobody does. Hey, you know what? This morning, I'm going to get angry at my children. I'm going to yell at them. I'm not going to ask how many actually did yell at your children. Nobody gets up and says, you know what? I am just going to do something today to where I feel like a total dirtbag when I, when I pray to God. None of us do that. So be careful not to sin is, is Christianity 101. But what I want to do with this is I want to show you how we do sin, what, what leads up to our sin, what kinds of sins do we have when we see it in this narrative. And so, first of all, we sin when we disobey the word of God. Look at verse number one. What did they, what did they ask for? Ask for an idol, right? They, they call for the making of an idol. And so sin is disobedience to God's revealed will. Gossip is a sin against God's revealed will. Immorality is a sin against how, what God has revealed is his will for us. <laughs> the people already had the Ten Commandments. Moses, he was up and down. You know, when we were in Arizona a couple weeks ago, we did quite a few hikes. And, and the one thing I was most interested in is this one has a 1,000-foot elevation change. This one has 600. I'll take that one. You know what I'm saying? Can you think about poor old Moses? He's in his 80s, and he's going up, and he's going down, he's going up, he's going down. Well, he got the Ten Commandments, uh, he came down and taught the Ten Commandments to them, then he went back up, and when he was down teaching them the Ten Commandments, it was a covenant ceremony, remember that they already had slaughtered a cow, he sprinkled the blood, they said, they said in Exodus 24, verse number 3, we're going to do everything the Lord commands us to do, and how long did that last? Not very long, did it? Uh, At the most, 40 days. Uh, We don't know how long it was. Because verse number 4 of chapter number 32 says, 
And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Guess what? They just broke numbers 1 and 2 for sure and numbers 3 to 10 in some other way. Okay? And we see this in the passage, by the way. They broke all Ten Commandments. They were worshiping the Lord in a way that clearly violated what God had said. And you know, it, it's easy for us to tell God we'll never do something again and then go right ahead and do it. How many have ever done that? All right, the rest of you are liars. Because all of us have said, God, I am never going to do that again. And then all of us have turned around and done the same thing again, haven't we? This is especially true with sins of addiction. Gluttons tell God they're going to stop overeating. And then they go on another binge. Sex addicts say they'll never use pornography again, but the next thing you know, they're back on the websites. Drunks swear they've had their last drink. Really, this time, they mean it. And sadly, they fall off the wagon again. Why do people do this? Why do people do this? Well, one way or another, we all do it in one way or another, don't we? We do it. We all struggle overcoming patterns of habitual sin, whatever they are. We keep getting tempted to commit the same sin again and again and again. Praise be to God that Jesus said, forgive your brothers 70 times 7. Then he goes on to explain, look, you have a sin that you can never forgive and God or forgive that you can never pay back, and God is still forgiving you. The reason we struggle is because the sin is in our hearts, isn't it? It it comes out of our hearts. It doesn't come from the refrigerator, and it doesn't come from the internet. And your your children are not demon-possessed. The story of the golden calf helps us to see this. Why did the Israelites worship a cow? Because they had never entirely forsaken the gods of Egypt. They promised to serve the Lord their God, but in their hearts they cherished the old idolatries. And in our hearts, we cherish the idolatries that are in our hearts. Too often in our struggle against sin, we focus almost exclusively on actions. We think we can overcome a sin by just stopping to do something. Uh, remember um, Nancy Reagan's, right? Just say no. But what our outward sin reveal is a true inward condition of our hearts. Sin is not so much what we do as what we are. Unless we get to the very root of the problem and put sin to death, we fall right back into the same old sins, doing the very things we swore to God that we would never do again. Now, how do we break that pattern? We need, we break the pattern by identifying and eliminating the idols in our heart. The most common ones, by the way, what are they? Money, sex, power, greed, lust. Sin is, dis- um, sin is in our hearts, and we need to he- ex- uh, heed the exhortation of the Apostle John, who said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What is your idol? What is the idol that's in your heart that you cherish? We all have it, and so sin is disobedience to God's revealed will to to the word of God. Secondly, we sin when we fail to trust God. Notice what they did. In verse number one of chapter 32, they they didn't know what happened to Moses. Man, that dude's been up there a long time. That's what they essentially told Aaron. So they took matters into their own hands. 
They, it's, it's distrust as well as disobedience. Sin is not trusting God in, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. Not trusting God is sin in itself, and it leads to other sins as we will see. We come up with our own strategies for making life work the way we want it. We, we fall into sin when we fail to trust that God knows what he's doing and try to work things out on our own instead of waiting for him to do something according to his own time frame. We want to speed things up. We pray for our children. Lord, please change my child. Please help them to see what they're doing is wrong. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're Lord, come on now, He's getting, it's another year, and so what do we do? We resort to manipulative language. We, we resort to trying to coerce them into doing something instead of discipling them and praying for them and being patient with them. We take matters into our own hands. We want to speed things up. By setting the agenda, what we're really trying to do And this is important. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to wrest control from God. And and, and when we do that, what we ought, instead of wait for him, um, we cause all kinds of problems. Do you remember this guy named Abraham? Who was supposed to be the father of of many nations. and, And the guy is 90 years old and still does not have a child. He took matters into his own hands and it was disastrous, wasn't it? The trouble is, like the Israelites, we're often tempted to be impatient. We, didn't, we get impatient for God to, to heal us. We have chronic health problems. Lord, heal me. Um, we, we get impatient for uh, God to provide for our needs. We get impatient for him to bring about spiritual change, either in our own lives or the lives of others. We get impatient for him to lead us out of the wilderness. But you know what? Sometimes for our own benefit, God chooses to keep us in the wilderness. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? Be in the wilderness. That might be exactly where God wants us right now. And if that is where God has us, we stay there and we trust his goodness and we wait on his timing. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to do, isn't it? To wait on God. Because so much of the time, it just feels like God's not moving. That God's not even there. God, are you there? Hello? I'm still in this wilderness. Don't you care about my comfort as much as I do, God? Right? And so wait on God. We sin when we fail to trust God. We sin when we fail to use our gifts to the glory of God. In verses 3 and 4, think about what they did. What did Moses tell them to do? Take off your rings. Take off your earrings. I'm sure some of them had nose rings and things. Take all those rings off. Take that gold that God had graciously given you, that you plundered off the Egyptians. They had none of that before. God gave it all to them. Take that and make an idol out of it. I was telling one of my children on Thursday that we should enjoy God's gifts. Be thankful for them and use, listen, this is most important, use his gifts for his glory, not for our own idolatrous devotion. 
I've talked about this before, famous people, uh, celebrities, extremely gifted, whether they're athletes or whether they're singers or whatever they are, they take the gifts that God graciously gave them and then they just heap for themselves idol upon idol for their own consumption. And that's not what we're to do, are we? It was not only the gold that they gave, but it was also the skill and the time it took and the tools it took to make that idol that was not used for God's glory. Many people um, today, they want salvation, but they want it without the dedication. They want to be forgiven and go to heaven, but they want to hold on to the idols of the world. And so many people who, who claim Christianity, they, they have the salvation, but they refuse to take what God has given them and use it for his glory. They still consume. The, Egypt is still in them. I, I gave an article to the elders this week. We all, we all read it, and it's very good for our consumption, and this is something that uh, I'm going to use as a springboard in about three weeks for a sermon, but I want to give you a little bit about this article. It was a research article about the state of the American church. Some of you know this kind of stuff. Many of you do not, but I, I want to I share a little bit. Do you know what the, the average size of, the, of an American congregation is today? The average church congregation in America today is 65 people. Now, that's down 20 from when I was in seminary a, a long time ago. It was 85 when I was in seminary. It's down to 65. Listen to this. Seven in 10 churches in the United States fit that category. Did you know that? You probably had no idea. They're so small that nobody notices them. That's the typical church. 70% of all churches in America are that way. Large congregations. Now, we, most people have a skewed reference of what large is. Demographers, church demographers, a large congregation is any congregation with an average weekly attendance of 250 or more. That's large. Okay? They account for 10% of all the churches in the United States. 10% meaning this church is in the top 10% of all the churches in the United States. Hard to believe, isn't it? Okay? But, listen, they account for 60% of all the attendance. 10% of the churches have 60% of the attendees in the United States. And these are the congregations that are growing. Churches over 250 are growing. The larger the congregation, the more prone it is to grow. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? Except that it's not. There's a catch. Listen to this. Congregations with less than 100 people have the highest rate of member participation. They have the highest rate of individual giving. Large congregations, on the other hand, have the lowest rate of participation and the lowest rate of individual per capita giving. Now, why is that? Why is that? It's almost universally agreed that people go to larger congregations to spectate rather than serve. And when you're in a small congregation, there's, there's close accountability 
and you're expected to serve. If you don't, everybody's going to know it. In a bigger congregation, you can get away with not serving. Now, this church has a weekly attendance average over 300. So we fall into the large church category, and I'm going to tell you, we could use more participation. We could. Yeah, right? So I have to ask, this is my question for everybody here today, and I have no person's face in mind when I ask this question. What are you doing with the gifts that God has given you? What are you doing? Excuses don't work. They don't. God gave you those gifts for his own glory. Now let me give you a fourth way that we sin. We sin when we distort the worship of God. Verses 5 to 6, we learn that they resorted to worshiping God in the way that the culture worshiped their idols. Notice the syncretism. You know what syncretism is, right? It's the combining of two different religions together. Notice the syncretism in in the religious language and the pagan action. Aaron said, verses 5 and 6, he made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. There's There's that Israelite Jewish language. And they rose up early the next day, and here it is, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now that's good, isn't it? That's the orthodox thing. And then the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play, and there's the problem. I don't know if you know this. This, this is mixed orthodoxy. They mixed orthodoxy with the, the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings and things, with idolatry. It was a drinking party. The final word in verse number six, look at it. They rose up to play, has overtones of, of sexual indecency. It's debauchery. It's an orgy. It's what they were doing. Their worship was vulgar and debauched. It, was, it degenerated into a wanting orgy of lewd dancing. They weren't worshiping. They were party, party, partying. You know the word. Okay, I don't know why I struggle with that word today. It wasn't for God's glory at all. It was for their own sinful pleasure. That's why idolatry is so great for people. You get to do what you want. Why do people worship Baal, the god of fertility? You tell me why you would worship a god of fertility. Asherah, Chemosh, all these gods. The worship services are great if you're into gratifying yourself. When we follow the gods of the world, we begin to do things our own way, and we contaminate our worship, and we corrupt our gifts, and ultimately, it compromises our morals. Mark this down. Idolatry leads to immorality, always. Idolatry leads to immorality. We must remember that. Let me give you one more. Last one. We sin when we exchange the glory of God. Now go to verse number 8. We didn't read that earlier this morning, but skip down to verse number 8 and see what God told Moses. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I had commanded them. They have made for them a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They exchanged the glory of God for an idol. Do you remember Romans chapter number 1, particularly verses 22 to 25? The Bible says that men who reject God, they worship created things instead of the creator. And Romans 1 says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Romans 1.23. 
That's exactly what man does when they worship idols. The better something is, the more likely people will idolize it. Right? Romans 1 goes on to say that what, what was the result of their idolatry? Verse 23 says they went into idolatry. What's the result? When you read Romans 1, sexual immorality, sexual perversion, uh, defiling their bodies, people live in bondage to sexual sin in part because the, the human body is an amazing creation. And the more, more um, wonderful something is, the more people are going to worship it. And the two results of idolatry stand out in Exodus 32. First of all, idolatry results in moral corruption, doesn't it? Wrong worship leads to corrupt worship. Read Romans 1, to 25 sometime. You're going to see that sin problems are worship problems. Your pornography addiction, dear man, and I know there are men addicted to pornography sitting right here today. Listen to me. Your pornography addiction is a worship problem. Mom, dad, teenager, your anger problem is a worship problem. Dear person, your love of money is a worship problem. There's a, I don't know if you've ever read the book. There's a book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods. It's on the idolatry of our culture. And he's, he talks about the, the exposure of the God of money in America in the 2008-9 collapse. Remember the financial collapse during that time? This is what he said, quote, Some hung themselves shot themselves behind the wheel of their expensive sport cars, slit their wrist, and leapt from their office window. Why? Their God was taken from them, end quote. So, idolatry results in moral corruption. Secondly, idolatry results in imitation. I don't have time for this. I'm going to have to cut this out, but I'll just say this much. Idolatry results in imitate. We, imitation, we become what we worship. And when you worship idols, you become lifeless. Think with me. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever had a week where you've, you've heard God's word being preached or you've been in God's word? You, maybe you're a teacher and you taught God's word and you come in on Sunday morning and your heart is full. And it doesn't matter what we sing, your heart is just full of God. And have you ever had a week where you spent your, your mind time in the pleasures of this world, whatever, maybe one of your idols, maybe just in worldly things, and you've been totally consumed with something worldly, and you walk in here, and what is your worship like? It's dead, isn't it? It's completely dead. You are what you worship, and if you worship an idol, your worship will become lifeless. And so that's, that's, uh, that's the nature of sin. Well, let's move on. Let's move on from talking about the uh, be careful not to sin. Number two, what do we do in our journey between our conversion and glory? We also see the power of intercession. This is beautiful. I don't have uh, a whole lot of time to flesh this out. Psalm 106, uh, verse number 23 says this about Moses. Therefore, this is God Therefore, when God said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? What kept them from being destroyed? Moses. 
And I'll show you how in just a minute. Moses did it. Now, look in Exodus 32, verse number 10. In Exodus 32, verse number 10, the Lord said, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. And then in verse number 14, we read, And the Lord, what? Relented of the disaster that he had spoken to bring among his people. Did God change his plans? That, that I could teach a whole lesson on, on just that subject. That's a fascinating subject. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful subject. But let me say, the word is no. When the Lord relented, it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. What God did was invite Moses to pray. And Moses did. Then God turned away his wrath. God wasn't changing his plans Listen, this is important. God wasn't changing his plans. Moses carried out his plans. And I want you to see three lessons in this intercession. Moses interceded. This is so critically important. You can intercede for your children this way, parents. You can intercede for family members and people you love dearly. Notice what he did. When he interceded for Israel, number one, he appealed to God's faithfulness and character in prayer. Look at verse number 11. He, he appealed to God's power. He, he more or less says, hey, Lord, why would you nullify your power? Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with what? Great power and with a mighty hand. And so he appeals, first of all, to God's power. Why, why would you just make everything null by destroying these people when you show this massive display of power? Notice something else he appealed to. He appealed in verse number 12 to God's investment and public reputation. In verse number 12 he says, Why would you want your enemy to delight in seeing your people crushed? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, Did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God, what about your public reputation? Don't destroy them, Lord, because you brought them out. You bring them out. The Egyptians are going to say, hey, their God brought them out just because he wanted to destroy them. And we know that's not the truth about you, God. Then in verse number 13, he appealed to God's covenant faithfulness. He's basically saying, why would you go back on your promises, God? Look at verse number 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it. Look, when we pray to God, intercessory prayers, we pray appealing to God's character. Isn't that wonderful? God, please save my husband. Please save my wife. Please save my child. Please save my friend, my mother, my father, because you are not willing that any should perish. You're a gracious God, and you're glorified by all this. See how we pray? We appeal to God's character when we intercede for others. But, but secondly, when we pray, we should seek the will of God and not our own selfish desires in prayer. We should seek the will of God and not our own selfish desires. Moses didn't ask for personal glory here. I mean, God told him, look, I'll start all over. Look, I'll wipe these people out. We'll start a new nation. We'll call it the Mosesites or something. I don't know. Right? 
this was a flattering, and obviously, wouldn't you be tempted? You got two million complainers that you're dragging through the desert. What's not the appeal of that? (laughs) That was appealing. But Moses cared more about the people who were part of God's promised great nation. And so prayer, in prayer, it is his glory that we should seek, right? Let me give you a third one. We must believe that God answers prayer. This is one of the best examples of how God responds to prayer. When we intercede like Moses did, we're not whistling in the wind. God hears the cries of his people. Revelation tells us that the prayers of the saints, they're likened to incense, aren't they? God bottled them up in the altar. Your prayer, day after day after day, when you're heartbroken, praying for your children, praying for other people, whatever you're interceding for, God is pleased. That's like incense into the nostrils of Almighty God. And the Bible says he bottles them up. In other words, he hasn't forgotten them and he remembers them. Isn't that wonderful? Think about how many, how many times have you been on your knees praying, thinking, God, I don't know what else to do. There's nothing else I can do but pray. I'm so small and insignificant. And you're so great and mighty. Are you, are you, why should you even listen to me? Have you ever thought that? Why, God, listen to me? I know who I am. But if you're in Christ, he's listening and he is pleased. And so we believe that God answers prayer. That's what I love about the people that come on Wednesday night. The people who come pray with us on Wednesday night, they believe that God answers prayer. The people every Sunday morning, 845 and B8, Right over here, just catty corner right there, we pray. We believe God answers prayer. And you know what we prayed for today? We prayed that God would expose our idols, that we would repent of them, and God be glorified. He hears those prayers because they're his word. Do you believe that God answers prayer? All right, I got to keep moving. Number three, as we're going through this wilderness journey, we got to repent of sin. Don't shift blame, don't minimize sin. Don't, uh, don't say the devil made me do it, to borrow a famous phrase, right? I want you to notice the progress of the narrative. And I'm just going to have to skim over this real fast, verses 15 to 29. First of all, we have confrontation. Moses confronted them by doing two things. The first thing he did, he broke the Ten Commandments. And the second thing he did was destroy their idols. Now, the Ten Commandments, I want you to think about something. These two tablets, they had all Ten Commandments written on front and back. Many people are are mistaken about what these tablets contain. They think one has five, the other has five. No, they were written, most likely, front and back, all Ten Commandments. They were not large. They were not these giant honking things that you see in pictures, okay? They were not large. These were this covenant that God made with him through the um, Ten Commandments was, a, was a, a covenant that's made between a suzerain and a vassal, a more powerful ruler and his subjects. And when they make these treaties, these covenants, there's always two copies, one for the ruler and one for the subjects. And so the Ten Commandments had 
all ten, these stone tablets had all ten on both of them. And the Bible says that they were written by what? The very finger of God. You have to realize these were the most valuable personal possessions on the face of the earth at that time. They were priceless. And Moses took those things and he broke them. And why did he break them? It's symbolic of the fact that they broke all Ten Commandments. And we see that. They were out playing sexual play. There's the immorality. Uh, they did all the, all the breaking of the covenants. And then, and then of course, we're going to see here in just a minute, Aaron lied. I mean, all the, co- all the commandments were broken. All the commandments were broken. Moses broke them. Remember what the Bible says in, in James chapter 2, in verse number 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at what? One point has broken all of it. The Israelites, they stumbled over more than one point, that's for sure. But the principle still applies. By worshiping the golden calf, they had broken the whole law of God. The next thing that Moses did is he destroyed the golden calf. He burned it. Now remember, it's wood. It's carved wood overlaid in gold. And so he burned it. He pulverized it. He liquefied it. And then he made them drink it. It's, it's not altogether clear. There's a lot of speculation. Why? It could have been another symbolic act. Uh, I'll just say Augustine thought it showed that the people had to swallow their ungodliness. Whatever it meant, Moses made the Israelites, gave the Israelites gold water, making them taste the bitterness of their idolatry. And here's the important point of all this. The important thing to remember was you get rid of an idol once and for all. uh, Moses utterly and completely destroyed the golden calf. Idols are not to be tolerated. They're to be annihilated. We need to do this with our own idolatries as well because we're all idolaters. And let me say this. Why a golden calf? Why a golden calf? Because of Egypt. Apis was the premier god in Egypt, and he was a bull. He was a bull. That, that's why they did that. That was a premier god. They didn't want just a golden calf. They wanted the premier golden calf. Well, the second thing, so you had the confrontation. In verses 21 to 24, you have uh, shifting blame and, and minimizing the sin. The next person, after confronting everybody, the next person he confronted was Aaron, his big brother. Big brother Aaron. And instead of doing, instead of repenting, he did like Adam did in the garden. He shifted the blame. He blamed it on the people. Tried to make it sound like Moses had the problem. Well, you know these people. You left me here with all these people. You know what they're like? And they were getting angry. I I thought I was going to lose my life, Moses. We see this all the time. Instead of confessing sin, people make excuses for their sin. And there's usually a kernel of truth in in these excuses, by the way. But you're the one to give in to the temptation. So Aaron said, the people made me do it. They said to me. And then his final excuse is really pathetic. It's real. He's just making it up on the fly. He said, you know what? We threw this gold in the fire and out came this calf. 
I, I got it. You know, that you talk about ultimate brain freeze. I, you have to laugh thinking about that. I mean, this is Moses we're talking about. This is his little brother, but man, he's seen Moses call down fire and whatever else. He's thinking he's in trouble. Whether you admit your sin or not, you remain accountable for your sin, right? It's not the devil made me do it. And then we have repentance. I wish I had time to go through this in detail because this is beautiful. In verses 25 to 29, God made it clear that those who committed idolatry must be cut off. They must be cut off. And so as a result, 3,000 men failed. They had to die in order to preserve the truth for the salvation of future generations. Now, in verse number 26, there seemed to be an opportunity for repentance before the judgment is carried out. He, Moses, in verse number 26, asked, who chooses the Lord? Who chooses the Lord? Now, why were 3,000 killed? That seems, kind of, that seems just kind of rough, doesn't it? Well, everything that uh, scholars and everything look at, it seems to be, and this makes sense to me, that the 3,000 that were killed, they were the ones who were hardened. They were like, yeah, I committed idolatry, and I am not going to repent of it. Maybe the ringleader types. And they were not going to change their minds, and they had to be killed. They were hardened against God. The Levites carefully and systematically carried out the punishment on those who failed to turn to the Lord. And I, I will not be dealing with this, but I want to just give you this little nugget. Did Aaron actually repent? He did. Has it ever occurred to you that the same man who led the whole nation into idolatry just a few months later was installed as the high priest? Aaron led an event where people broke all Ten Commandments, gross sexual immorality, 3,000 were killed by man. Another at least 20,000 were killed by God. We're going to see in just a minute. You, you, if that guy had repented, a guy like that had repented in our church, what would we do in churches? What do churches do? Yeah, you can be a member, but you're going to sit there and you're not going to do anything for years because you did this. That's not how God works, is it? Isn't that wonderful? Some of you may be this today thinking, you know, before I was saved, I did this. I can't do anything for the Lord. No, that's not, that's not true at all. If you were a really bad person before your salvation and God forgave you, you can do great things, whatever God wants you to do. You're forgiven. You're not a second-class Christian. Well, let me finish. The last thing we need to do is see our substitute. Well, I, um, my slides are messed up. There we go. See our need for a substitute. I want you to notice Moses' words in verse number 32. I'm going to read two verses here and then finish. Verse 32, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses offered to lose his own life for Israel. Moses understood the need for a substitute. And that's what sacrifices were all about, weren't they? The, sat, the lamb sacrificing the substitute. But Moses was not sinless. And so therefore, look at verse number 33. Or 35, I'm sorry. 
35, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. This is one of the strongest statements about the absolute necessity for forgiveness of sins and therefore the need for a Savior. Moses uh, offered his life, but God said, basically, your life's not good enough because you're not perfect. And so God still had to punish the idolaters, and he did it through a plague. The Bible says 20,000, 23,000 lost their lives. We need a substitute. The sacrifice, the only substitute that God can accept is a personal Savior. He did come, and God did accept him. And while Jesus was here, remember what he said? He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you haven't done so, turn from your idols into the living God. To those who are saved, you need to see your idols for what they really are. They're dumb. They're dumb idols. They can't do anything for you is what I'm saying. Enjoy created things, but worship only the one true God. How can this be done? This is the last thing I'm going to leave you with. How can it be done? Set your minds on heavenly things and not on things of this earth. Lord, I realize we're a bit long today. Thank you for everybody's attention. So critically important for us to understand the true nature of idolatry. How nobody else caused our idolatry. Idolatry comes from our own hearts. I pray right now, I have no doubt that there are um, people who the Holy Spirit is speaking to about the idolatry of their heart. I pray that they will burn that idol, grind it up, and get rid of that idol, whatever it is in their life, that they will repent of it, that they will set their affection on things above, think on heavenly things, and don't have their affection on things on this earth. Lord, these things are passing away. Lord, I pray for those who are... um, tempted to not trust you. Be, the, their patience is, is getting weary and uh, they're, they're getting exhausted. I pray, Lord, that you will strengthen them to trust you and not take matters into their own hands. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to intercede, to not be weary in our intercession for others, whether they be in our family, our friends, or people in our church, that we'll continue to pray. And Lord, I pray most of all that we'll put our faith in the Savior, the perfect Lamb of God who gave His life for the other sheep. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.